Good morning, everybody. My name is Maria. I'm a recovering compulsive overeater and bulimic. So proud of everyone for being here early on a Saturday. Yeah. Uh, I used to binge a lot on the Fridays and Saturday mornings, and this would be a time I'd be on the couch at home, either lamenting about what I ate the night before or promising myself I wouldn't do it again today and, uh, you know, inevitably stuffing my face again because I wouldn't be able to help it. So I think it's amazing that we're all here this early on a Saturday morning ready to get some recovery. Um, I find that the people who are eager and willing and really get the shovel out are the ones that have suffered the most. And I'm certainly somebody who has suffered, you know, tremendously from this disease. It took, it almost took my life. It took everything. It took absolutely everything. Um, the reading has suggested that the speaker um, is, is here in part to help people decide whether OA is for them or not. And I'd like to read a bit from the first tradition, excuse me, tradition three, uh, and read a little bit about what it says. Uh, no per- the, the tradition is the only requirement for OA membership is the desire to stop eating compulsively. No person who has this desire can be barred from any OA group. OA members come from many different backgrounds, races, and religions. We can and do have differences in opinions, political views, values, lifestyles, age, gender, sexual orientation, and economic status. A person can never be too overweight, too underweight, or too normal in weight to be an OA member. Newcomers sometimes ask, what if I only have 10 pounds to lose? The answer is there are no weight requirements of any kind in OA. Nor is it a membership requirement to have common experiences with the disease of compulsive eating. Some of us have been on many diets, while others of us have never dieted at all. Some of us binged and some of us didn't. Some of us fasted, some of us purged by various methods. We count among our members those who have been eating compulsively since childhood and those who never had a problem with food until their retirement years. All who have experienced the pain of compulsive eating and want to stop are equally welcome here. So uh, my experience, and I'm going to talk about that today, and what, what it suggested is that if you're new, you try at least six different meetings to figure out if OA is for you. It's also suggested when you hear someone speak that you try to identify with the feelings and not compare. Um, I, you know, when I first came into OA, I used to get into these deep metaphysical, philosophical, uh, internal debates mentally about was it the chicken or the egg? Was it nature or nurture? Was I made a compulsive overeater or was I, did I become one after birth? And I can tell you today, I don't care. It doesn't matter. What I know is I have this thing. I have this thing. Just like if I had cancer and I could sit and, you know, think about, oh, do I, how did I get the cancer? Where did the cancer come from? Blah, 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 blah. It wouldn't matter. The thing would be that I would be ill with the disease. And I realize that it doesn't matter. I'm ill with the disease. Um, I certainly had a very um, complicated upbringing, I'll say that. I think one of the most dangerous things that transpired during my youth was actually neglect. Uh, I was not spoken to directly very frequently. I was very isolated. I was bullied. I was teased. Uh, and I learned, I learned with um, kind of like a Ph.D. program how to be a victim. This was kind of the experience that I had in childhood. Um, 
I remember always being utterly, completely, and totally fascinated with food. I remember very clearly, uh, I'm from New York, grew up in New York, but we lived in California when I was very little. And I remember my mother baking something in the oven, and I, I remember standing outside the oven like, you know, you ready yet? You know, and I was like three, you know. I mean, I, I just really had this thing with food uh, from the get-go. And... Um, uh, I tell you, for anyone who's new, I've, I've been in the program a while, and I have a lot more clarity now about what happened. When I first came in, it was like I was hit by some bullet train, and I didn't know what the hell had happened. But uh, I, when I look back now, I've got a lot more clarity, and I've got a lot more clarity from a lot of the step work that I've done in this program. Um, and if you're new, uh, people look at me and they're like, oh, she can't possibly understand my pain. Uh, she's a normal weight and she has no idea how I've suffered. And the truth is, <laughs> the truth is, you know, I came, when I came in, I was like 50, 50 pounds heavier, 40 pounds heavier than I am now. And um, I've struggled, I've struggled, you know, it's been, it's not easy. It hasn't been a, a, you know, an easy ride for me by any means. I've had to really, really work this program. So uh, I've been in OA by the grace of God uh, one day at a time in October. It's going to be 22 years. And I've been, you know, I've had some challenges with my abstinence, but for the most part abstinent that entire, entire time. And I, I take my program very, very seriously. Um, and, and part of it was, you know, in New York, we used to have this expression of being a gutter girl. And if there is a bowery uh, uh, for the compulsive overeater, I was there. I definitely was there. Uh, bottom of the barrel, gutter girl, compulsive overeater. And um, I always felt different. I felt like, I don't know, there was some alien spaceship. I got booted. They left me down here. And nobody, nobody understood me. Nobody got me. Nobody knew my pain. Nobody knew what it felt like to be me. Um, by the time I was nine, I was very overweight. I was one of the fattest kids in the grade, and nothing was more horrific than peak me class and the annual weigh-in, the, um, the pull-ups, the, the fitness exams they would do, which for me were utter and complete, uh, you know, humiliation. Um, it often in the locker room, just changing my clothes was just humiliating as well. And I, I was ashamed of myself. I loathed the way I look. I, I hated myself. And at, at the more I hated myself, the more I ran to the food to quell the, the anxiety, the humiliation, and the shame that I felt. Um, so it was a vicious cycle. Uh, I hated myself for being unattractive. I hated myself for being fat. I hated myself for not being like the other kids. And to deal with that, I ate more. And I was greater cause for bullying and humiliation. And I became a pretty good victim. Uh, that's all I knew how to do to respond to the situation. My life became about being safe, about being small, about protecting myself from attack. And um, I had, you know, a, a really difficult time. One of the reasons I'm talking so specifically about this time period in my life is because, shockingly, the more step work I do, the more I have to go back into that exact time period to undo what was done. Because I set up a whole belief system in that time period that when I utilize it in my adult life, adult life it is very, very damaging. Uh, I was in survival mode in that period, and um, it was just a really difficult, complex situation. 
And in, at the time, it didn't occur to me as a nine-year-old or whatever it was. I, I, was, I did try to seek some spiritual solace. But I didn't, it never occurred to me that I could, like, talk directly to a, a higher power, that something was looking out for me. I didn't really feel that sense. Uh, I, I, felt, uh, I felt very alone. And um, as time went on, I became a young adult. I was in junior high school, and I was looking around and seeing that the other kids had cool clothes and they were normal weight. And I became very self-conscious, and I started to try to restrict uh, and I, I was not a great restrictor. I would do my best, but like I'd skip dinner one night because I had been a bad girl and eating some, eating something I shouldn't eat. And so the next day I would uh, allow myself a little wiggle room, and then I would binge. And you know I would buy like a box of some kind of sweets, and I, oh, I'll just have one. I'll just have one. Uh, and then I'd have the one, and I'd sit down and watch TV, and I'd have go back to the kitchen and get another. Uh, okay, so, well, all right, I'll have two more. And then I'd go back to the living room, and I'd sit down, and, oh, you know, maybe, all right, well, if I don't eat breakfast, then I can have three more. So I'll go, I'll go back, and, and, you know, whatever sweet thing I bought, within one to two days, it was always gone. I, I'm totally powerless over stuff like that. I really understand that now. I, I could never keep it in the house. Uh, I'm still stunned, like, when I go out to eat with people and they'll get a dessert and I'll try a few bites. Oh, my God, this is so rich. <laughs> I, can't, I can't possibly eat anymore. <laughs> and they push it away, and I'm like, what? You know, like, lightweight, you know. Uh, no way. Those words never came out of my mouth. You never heard me say, this is so rich. I can't, no, no, never. Uh, or it's too sweet. No, never. Uh, you, what you did hear me say is, oh, is there any left? Uh, uh, may I have another, you know? So uh, you did hear that. And one of the problems with my compulsive eating is that I was, I was like, I used to see, the, they used to have these ads on television, and I watched a ton of television as, as a child. Of way too much. They used to have this ad about like this woman saying, "I'll do anything to get drugs." And I remember watching it as a kid, being like, "That's me with food. Where do I go? What do I? Where, where can help me?" And um, I, I, uh, I would be. Let's say I was out with a friend, and we were at a restaurant, and we ordered dessert, and I, and I, there would be a whole. While I'm sitting there talking to the person, I wasn't there. I was like, am I going to get the dessert here, or am I going to get it and take it home? If I get it and take it home, will I get two, or will I just get one? When I get home, is anybody going to see me eating it? Are they going to ask me for some of it? Am I going to have to eat it in my bedroom so they don't see me eating it? Just like a crack addict. Exactly like a heroin crack. I don't care what you call it. That's how I was with food. I was not present for people. I didn't care. I was focused on what, when was I going to get my food and how. Okay. And I, even all of my family member, members, and even my poor husband, unfortunately, has experienced me being crazy around food. And there, there, sometimes when we have, even to this day, family dinners, they're kind of like, okay, Maria, like, what do you want to eat for them? Because I've, I've, like, because I've been in my disease, I've horrified them around how I am around food. You know, it's terrible. So, um, so eventually, uh, I became bulimic. I um, tried to control my eating with purging. I, I really hate vomiting. I mean, even like when I've gotten the flu and other things in recovery, I cry after. I hate throwing up. And I would force myself to do it as best I could. And it, and it wasn't until I got into recovery that I realized what that was about. It wasn't until I tried to stop to stop the binging and the purging that I realized I had a problem. So that, that's how time. Okay. So, um, 
what happened to me was I went away, I was in New York, I went to upstate New York for my junior year of college, I went out drinking one night and I tried to commit suicide. I had been very suicidal since I was nine, uh, 10 years old. I tried to commit suicide and they ended up putting me in a place for uh, alcoholism. While I was there, I heard about OA. Uh, and while I was there, I was in a five-week program, I gained 25 pounds in five weeks. 25 pounds. And most overeaters will be like, oh, yeah, it's about right. <laughs> I could do that. Maybe, maybe I could do a little more. Yeah. You know? And only to always get that. And um, I got to be good friends with the chef. Do you need help with the dessert? I'll <laughs> um, And it was, again, humiliating. Uh, you know, most of the people there were emaciated because they hadn't been eating during their drinking. Not me. And... Uh, I, they would put dessert on the table and I couldn't help myself. I went up two or three times and people would be like, Maria, what are you doing? And I couldn't stop. I just couldn't stop. And I heard that OA suggested you eat three meals a day and I got out of treatment on October 3rd, 1992 and I started eating three meals a day. And I went to my first OA meeting in New York and the people were, it was like a two-person meeting and <laughs> when I walked in there, there was a girl with her head on the table like this and uh, I was asking her, you know, I was like, Neil, I was like, okay, so how do I do this? Like, uh, what, do I do not eat? I don't understand. And she was like, oh, you just ate three meals. And, uh, so I'm going to tell you that you just keep coming back and find a meeting that works for you. That did not become my home group, I can tell you that. Um, I just went, I, I went, kept going. I found some meetings on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. At that time, they had these abstinent and sober meetings. I'm not sure if they're still there, but they were great. And um, I, I was just stunned. I heard people speaking in the meeting what I was thinking about food. Like, I, I couldn't articulate it, but they could. And I was shocked. And um, a lot of times I hear people criticize OA and things about OA. You know, OA is not perfect. It's a microcosm of the world. There's great people in here. There's crazy people in here. It's not a perfect institution. But I, I'm, I, if there's one thing in my life, if I die tomorrow, I can say I worked the OA program and I was abstinent. Like, that would be my greatest source of pride and joy, was that I worked an OA program and I was abstinent. Because I'm going to tell you that while I was originally in college eating, uh, I couldn't get off the couch, I couldn't show up for class, I couldn't, I couldn't function. And um, I ended up going, uh, going back to school and I did a lot of the things I learned in program. I came early, I sat in the front row, I, um, I stayed late, I did all my work, I never missed a class, and I was able to graduate with honors from a better university than when I had been attending. Um, you know, my work life has been very difficult in recovery. I, I love to tell you that I've had this perfect, easy ride in recovery, and it's really not that. And I, I wanted to stress to the newcomers that what I gained in here were tools to handle life on life's terms. When I came in, I thought, I've suffered so much, now God's going to give me an easy ride because God knows how much I've suffered. And it's not been like that at all. It's been the same highs and lows that everyone else experiences, except I was always below zero because I was in, had my face in the food and in the toilet. And now I get to kind of come up and have the same chance at life that everybody else does. I didn't have a chance while I was in the food. Um, I take my program very seriously. When I came in, I was told to get a home group, a sponsor, and start working the steps. And uh, so that's what I did. I also took on service positions, and within six months of being abstinent, uh, I got a, a, a sponsee as well. At that time, you know, there weren't a whole lot of people sponsoring, so, we, you know, we just had to help each other. And um, the, weight, the weight for me was not an issue. It was not... Um, 
uh, let me just say, I, I did not feel loving towards my body. I will say that. I, I'll say that my primary purpose in a way was serenity. That uh, they have a saying in here, I came for the vanity, I stayed for the sanity. But I really didn't care so much at that point if I lost weight because by the time I got here at, after the treatment situation, I couldn't sleep at night because I was eating so much food. Uh, I, my stomach was so bloated and I, I just had terrible acid reflux. I'm like, none of my clothes fit anymore. And I just wanted to not eat all day. That's what I wanted. I wanted to eat like a normal human being. And I got into the step work. And by doing the step work and giving service, the weight eventually took care of itself. People came into my life, uh, the right professionals. Um, I had, you know, a good sponsor, and I was able to uh, have normalize my weight. Um, the step work in this program has been transformational. Um, I have been able to have, uh, you know, civil relationships with my family members as a result of working the 12 steps. Um, my, my family life had been a series of horrific devastations, and I, I, you know, I have to say, it took me, I think, seven years to fully complete the stuff. I was so furious with my family members. I just, you know, pardon the expression, like pissed vinegar at them for years. I mean, there's people on the whole Upper West Side of Manhattan that are, oh, yeah, you're the one who had those mother issues. Yeah, I remember you. Yeah, because I shared about them for like seven years. And, um, you know, it took me that long to really kind of, uh, you know, work out some of the stuff that I had been through. And it's funny, to me, uh, a lot of the stuff I experience with my family, they're like character defects. Like, I love my family, and then I spend time with them, and I'm like, ah, you know, so I have to be careful. But um, uh, what I can say is that if I hadn't been able to work the steps, like, before my grandfather died, um, you know, I had the courage to do a nine-step amends with him, and I fed him his last deal. And I knew when he passed that there was no ill feeling between us. And that before he died, a few years before, I knew he was angry about, at me about something, and I didn't know what it was. And I had the courage to go and talk to him. And we cleared it up. And he didn't die with me wondering if he, ate, uh, he hated me. He didn't die that way. We died at peace with one He died at peace with, with me, and, and we were at peace with one another. And you don't get experiences like that when your face is in the food. Because for me, when I'm binging, I, I, the disease is a series of attitudes for me. It tells me that I'm a piece of crap, that I'm worthless. And I pick out people and I start to hate them. That's how my disease works. I begin to slowly hate every aspect of my life until I finally hate myself and there's no point. And the only option is to eat. So I, I just, I, I really am, I just love this program so much for experiences like that. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, where I am now and what a long-term abstinence looks like. Long-term abstinence can be very tricky because people look at you in the room and they think she's been here over 20 years so she should share everything in recovery and her life should be completely together. Uh, at least this is what I think when people look at me sometimes. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I really feel with this disease especially, you know, in, in some other programs, like there's a substance, you give it up, done, right? Oh, so easy, yeah? For me... Things like the 10th step uh, are crucial because if I go to bed with a resentment, it could show up in my breakfast the following day. So I really feel like being an overeater puts me in the front row with a higher power. 
uh, and when I say higher power, I had to start developing a relationship with something greater than myself because at a certain point, it was going to be me up against the food. Maybe my sponsor wouldn't be there. It would be three in the morning. There wouldn't be a meeting. There wouldn't be someone to talk to. I needed to have a relationship with something greater than myself so that I could have something between me and the food. And the most important thing, I think, for me to know about my higher power is that there is a higher power and I'm not it. I'm not it. Uh, that's the most, higher, the most important thing for me to keep in mind. Um, there are still situations I go into today. Uh, when people invite me to a social event, I do get anxiety sometimes of uh, what kind of food are they going to serve? Am I going to be able to get what I need? A lot of times, like with parties, I'll eat first and then go, so it's not an issue if it's that kind of a situation where people are just, you know, picking at food. Um, and I, I have to really pray. I pray for my higher power to uh, show me what to eat that day. I pray for my higher power to help me with food choices and amounts. Generally in the morning when I wake up, I have a time of meditation and I ask my higher power to show me what to eat that day. Sometimes it comes very clearly, sometimes there's obscurity around one meal or another, uh, and then maybe I see that my plans change and no wonder I couldn't figure it out. But I had to get really intimate with my higher power and trust that she would show me what to eat when and how. And when I get stuck, I need to have a resource of people in OA, not just my sponsor. I need to have a group of people in OA that I can call and reach out to when I'm having challenges with the food. So it's been really important for me to get phone numbers, to stay connected, uh, and to constantly have this, uh, this resource of people that I can, I can connect with. And it's very challenging because all the while I'm doing this, my disease is like, don't do that. Don't bother. Why bother? Don't do that. No, don't call her. Stay home. Be home alone. You know? So it's really, there's this always, like, when I'm doing these things, I have to constantly, you know, step over the disease, which wants me at home alone and miserable and in the food with no one in my life. Like, that's really the goal of the disease is to rob me of any joy, happiness, pleasure, connection with a higher power, or self-fulfillment that I could possibly find in life. That's the goal of my compulsive overeating. And, um... You know, they say while we're in here recovering, the disease is out there doing push-ups. Is it one minute? One minute, 25 seconds. Okay. So, um, you know, one of the things I encountered in the past few years that was very shocking to me, historically I'd always been like a real compulsive overeater, uh, one of the things that became shocking to me was that my disease started saying, why don't you eat less? Why don't you skip a meal? Why don't you, you know, just tell eat half of that instead? And um, it's a very subtle thing, like a subtle thought that pops into the head. And I never thought I would be somebody that would struggle with something like that. You know, I used to hear anorexic share, and I'd be like, ugh, you know, come on, you know. And I really, every, every judgment I've had of this program, like that I've been put in a position where I've had to suffer through that thing. And um, I began to understand that the terror of gaining weight being, being fat again or getting, getting heavy again was so overwhelming that, that my disease could use that against me now to get me to not eat. And under eating is a whole thing too because what it does is it sets me up to binge because I get so hungry and I get the, you get the, you know, efforts so then I want to go and stuff my face. So it's a whole setup to actually binge and compulsively overeat. But at the time it makes perfect sense. It seems like I'm getting away with something. 
So I say this because uh, I'm happy to be here, but my abstinence depends on the spiritual work, my spiritual condition, and how well I work my program today, not how I worked it last year, not how I worked it 10 years ago. So I just want to say to you all, thank you for supporting me in my abstinence. I'm grateful to be here today, and thank you for letting me share. Uh, this is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Uh, please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. And then I'll restate the question if anyone asks. Okay. Well, yeah. Uh, thank you so much for sharing. Can you tell uh, us what your abstinence is defined and how it's changed over the years? Okay, sure. Okay, so the question is can I define my abstinence now and how it's changed over the years? Absolutely. So um, when I first came into OA, as I had heard, it was suggested at that time that a person eat three meals a day. And um, so my meals at that point were quite large. And basically I realized that I couldn't handle any kind of dessert or sugary items, so I cut those out immediately. Um, a lot of people say they, some people express a feeling of deprivation with that. For me it was complete freedom. I felt like uh, a jail cell door was closed and I didn't have to go back into it because there was no such thing as a bite or one with those kinds of things. For me, they were like a drug, so I just stopped eating those. And um, you have to understand, when I came in, I was eating all day long, and I went from eating all day long to eating three large meals, and I dropped like 12 pounds automatically just from not eating all day long, even though my meals were quite large. What started to happen is as I, as I worked the steps, three very large meals that made me uncomfortable afterward became to be objectionable, that came to not be okay, and I started to streamline my abstinence. And I had had a lot of nutritional knowledge, but I'd never been able to apply it because of my powerlessness over food. And so uh, eventually um, the meals got measured. They got smaller. They became more manageable. They became healthier. Uh, and I, I did find I was having some trouble with figuring out how to eat appropriately. I was weight training a few years after I got into program. And I met with a professional, and she went over a food plan with me um, that was more of five to six small meals a day. And I did that for a while. That worked well for me. Uh, and it's that, those five small meals were all measured. Um, uh, I did that for a while. I got very restrictive with it. I almost lost my abstinence, so I had to kind of change that up. And I just want to say that the professional I worked with gave me some really good guidelines, and I took it to an extreme. So I had to be really careful with that. Um, now what I do is I basically have three meals a day, but sometimes, like, if I know lunch is going to be a late, for lunch I generally have, like, a, a carbohydrate, a protein, and a vegetable. If I know lunch is going to go late, I'll have the carbohydrate earlier and then eat the vegetable and the protein at lunchtime. So I do split them up sometimes. My days can be quite long. Sometimes I work 12 hours and I need to, um, you know, make sure I'm fueled. And I do like to be physically active and I have to make sure I'm fueled for that as well. Um, I'm always fighting against a d drive to have the one meal be, all, be as large as possible, as full. You know, I still, you know, I'm like, no, let's break it up and make it, make it so that my blood sugar is, is balanced throughout the day. 
So, um, and I am going, I'm trying to make an appointment right now to see a, health, a professional to get more input on my food plan. Yes. Can you talk about um, jealousy and how uh, you deal with Ah, okay. All right. Wow. This is so funny. Uh, the question was jealousy and how I deal with jealousy. Man, gosh, I've just gotten nailed to the wall with this one past year. Um, it's funny. I have, I have one specific area in my work life where I get jealous of people. <clears throat> I was single for years in program. Like, uh, you know, this is the other thing people heard me share about was how single I was and how awful that was and was I ever going to meet somebody. But yet, I would see people get happily married, and I would feel, like, sorry for myself, but I was never jealous of them. But I had this one area in my work where when people start getting stuff in that area, I'm like, oh, I'm going to get you. That's not fair. God, I hate you. You know, and this whole thing starts in my head. And uh, I've actually been working on this. Um, for me, I have to, um, I, I try to address it with a 10-step where I ask myself, am I being resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? That's straight out of the big book. I do ask that. And what I have found that is a couple of my resentments ran so deep that a 10-step wasn't, wasn't sufficient and that I had to actually do a fourth step on it and a fifth step with the sponsor and take a look at the resentment. Um, but most of these resentments that I have come stem from a belief that my higher power will not give to me what that person is receiving. Also, they stem from a, a lack of acceptance on what is in my life and my set of circumstances, and that whatever that person is receiving may not be my higher power's will for me, and that I'm trying to tell my higher power how to run my life. And I have to really take a sharp, close look at that. Um, and I do find there's two people that come to mind when you suggest this, that I have to pray when I'm around them, and when I know I'm going to be with them, I ask my higher power to go into the situation before me to help me with it. Um, but a lot of times it does stem from a complete lack of gratitude about what I do have in my life, and I, and I tend to look at other people as having a whole bunch of things and I'm the worst one in the room. Just like when I was a kid, they, had, they were normal weight and I was the fattest kid in the room. And it's this mentality that I can take into these situations that I have to be really careful about. But for me, with this type of stuff, the, it's, it goes back to, uh, you know, the character defect, and I have to really work my steps around it because it, it'll take me out, totally take me out. I'll get so resentful, the next thing I know I'm binging. Great question. Thank you. Yes. Thanks. You mentioned uh, your family a couple of incidents. You talked about your grandpa. Sure. And your mom. I'd like to know how you resolve. Ah, okay, okay. So, um, you know, I do also want to say that professional help can be really helpful in these situations as well. Um, that I, I've had to utilize that, and it does talk about that in the big book. Um, as, as a recovering bulimic specifically, uh, it's funny. People who know me in meetings know that I always share meetings and I talk a lot. But I, I've got to tell you, in my personal life, I'm very quiet. People will say, how's it going? I'm fine. So usually it's with OAs that I really open up. And when I go to meetings, I do always share because as a recovering bulimic, it's my habit to stuff my feelings and what I'm thinking. And I try to do the opposite when I'm in a meeting and with my OA fellows. And for me, when I'm experiencing a resentment with a family member, I do need to talk about it. And I may even, to some people, the talk I have to do may be excessive. But for me, it's very necessary. I can tell you that I've probably done at least seven, maybe that's probably more, at least seven to ten four steps on my mother alone, at least. And um, I, um, I, 
I found out a few years ago that my mother had been through a very serious trauma, which she had never let me know about uh, until I was just maybe three or four years ago, that illuminated her behavior with me as a child. And I'm so grateful that I was able to repair our relationship uh, prior to having this discovery about the trauma because I gained such a, a whole new outlook of her and a deep respect for her. And I, I try to remember that with my parents, I feel like, and this is, I guess, kind of my opinion, but the job of a parent is to give their child a better life than they had. And they did do that for me. The bar was really low. <laughs> it was very helpful for me to talk with other recovering people because we all have really unbelievable stories. I found that really helpful. Um, but but it's been through, like, repeated step work and then the professional help. And, um, you know, I have to kind of remind myself that I'm an adult. Like, uh, you know, I've been in work situations where I've had to be like, oh, my God, wait, my boss is not my father. Oh, okay. Well, let me act like an adult in this situation instead of bringing a child to the situation and expecting this boss to parent me. So um, I think with both of them, with my grandfather, it was very easy to clear up the, 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 the why he was angry with me. With my mother, it's taken repeated step work. And I also have to understand, um, you know, it's a self-diagnosed disease, but I, I would say that my mother probably has, you know, she's come to some meetings in L.A. and she, she doesn't find it for her. And I have to accept her choice. That uh, like, It's very humbling. My mother has diabetes and she will not come to L.A., and I have to accept that that's her choice and that she might die. And what I'm trying to do with her is be a good daughter. I call her once a week. I want to have a relationship with her. I don't want her to die and have had years of resentment past where I didn't communicate with her because she didn't go to OA like I thought she did. And I just have to accept who she is and where she is and try to look for the positive things that can come out of our situation. Um, I just also want to say that when I'm with her physically, like she's on the East Coast, but when I spend time with her, uh, I, I have to outreach a lot more than, nor than I normally do because I, w I just get like, ah, you know, oh, my God, when is she going to, oh, my God. And so I have to make outreach calls and have people remind me, Maria, why don't you take a step back? How's your program going? What's going on with you? You know, it's like Maria starts and ends here. Her mother starts and ends there. You know, and really stay inside my own um, my own situation. But I, I think, I guess, like just hearing myself say it, I can't do it on my own. Like, I really have to reach out, do the step work, and, and, you know, bring my higher power into the situation. I hope that helps and answers the question. What's that? Oh. Okay, great. Yes. Yes, like, if you have a, you're having, like, an emotional hunger, and at the same time, you're, like, really strong, you eat, or you prefer to wait, or you deal with that, you don't end up overeating. Ah, okay. Okay, so if I'm feeling you're saying like emotionally upset yeah, and then a meal is coming. Okay. Okay, so how do I not have my feelings show up in my food is kind of what you're talking yeah. about. My emotions and feelings. Okay. Okay, so um, this was something I heard um, in it when I first came in and that somebody said to me once, you know, Maria, a meal has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I don't know why. That always floored me. I'm like, oh. 
Because I've been eating all day. I'm, oh, an end. Oh! People finish breakfast, and then they have a life. You know, this was like a new, a new concept. I didn't, I didn't really get that. Uh, for me, there's two things. Uh, first of all, my, my food is pretty clear as far as amounts of food, so that I don't fall into, I'm in the middle of eating, and then I decide to add on something extra. And if I know I'm in a precarious position mentally, I've got to make a phone call or uh, outreach in some way, shape, or form prior to eating. If I, Sometimes I'll go to a new place to eat and I'm feeling a little squirrely. I'll call my sponsor. I'll text her. We're trying a new place today. Here's what I think I'm going to have. And I need to really pray about it. But if I'm feeling dangerous, I, I always try to do some sort of outreach before I, I pick up the food. But I do, I do get clear on the amount of food I'm going to be eating, and I'm clear on that before I go into the meal. Like with my breakfast, it's always, it's always pretty much weighed and measured. So uh, I don't weigh and measure all my meals, but there are certain things I know I can't control myself around, so to speak. So I show my powerlessness by measuring it and knowing the clear, precise amount so I don't trip up while I'm eating it. Yes? So um, <clears throat> when you start thinking that you don't look for our expectations of what your program is going to do on the Okay, so the question is, when I feel like I don't measure up to people's expectations and program of me, what do I do to change? Okay, so, well, first, here's what I do. First, I wallow in it for a good long while. <laughs> okay, uh, I think how horrible I am. Maybe I don't even share because I'm feeling so ashamed of myself. And uh, I, so I'd like to tell you that that's not happened, but that's definitely, that definitely happens. Uh, then maybe my sponsor will say something like, what is going on with you? Uh, you know, I, my sponsor's like very direct and she's very blunt. She's also, uh, she's from the East Coast or Chicago as well. And one of the reasons I chose her is because my disease is very, very complicated, very insidious. And she's so blunt, like there's no second guessing. <laughs> she's not like, well, let's try. No, she's like, hey, you know, and she gets right to it. Um, so I think, I think like what I'm doing right now, feeling, um, I remember when I, when I, uh, I, somebody asked me to speak when I had, uh, what was it, when I had 20 years, 20 years, 18 years of abstinence, somebody asked me to speak on my anniversary, my OA anniversary, and I, I was feeling so ashamed about my work life that I almost didn't go and show up to speak, and I went and showed up to speak, and while I was speaking, somebody I knew from OA walked into the room, I hadn't seen her in six months, and she had relapsed and put on about 65 pounds, and she walked in while I was speaking. And it, it hit me that, uh, you know, OA doesn't say, wow, we're really sorry, but if you haven't become very successful in your work life, uh, you're not allowed to come to the OA meeting. And I think that's why it's so important that I read the tradition in the beginning of the meeting. And so I think showing up for service and helping the person who still suffers really helps me. Um, I like to speak to newcomers because they talk to me about what it's like to purge, and um, they talk to me about what it's like to be in the food. They talk to me what it's like to uh, binge and starve, and that reminds me that, um, that uh, you know, oh, okay, I do have some experience. What my experience is is I have, I have days in succession of being abstinent. That's what my experience is. I have days in succession of being abstinent. To me, that's what experience is in this program. And so when I talk to newcomers or I give service, then I remember, oh, I'm not a complete, you know, nimrod. You know, I, I do have some experience to share. 
Okay, is that time? Okay, great. Perfect. Thank you.